Hello. Hi. Good. That works. Hello, everyone. My name's Tom. If you've not met me, uh, I'm one of the elders here, and it's a real privilege to... Oh, we're all going to do a thing with a thing. Is that better? Yeah, is that a little bit more better? Do you want me to just speak louder? Okay. No. <laughs> oh, wasn't worship good? Like, I just want Jesus. Everything else can just go away. I just, I just want Jesus. I just want to look at him, and I just want to worship him, and I just want him to just take that place on the throne in my life, and everything else, just like Emmy was sharing, everything else is just perspective. Everything else is just insignificant. So that's just a, I just, yeah, that was good. Um, it has been a particularly tough week. I will point out we had a tummy bug this week, so we went away for the weekend, and then Friday night, obviously, we go camping. Elsie vomits in the tent on the first night at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then you clear that up, and then half an hour later, she vomits again, and then half an hour later, she vomits again, and when you're camping, that's a big deal. And then two days later, Anna is vomiting, and then two days later, Arthur's vomiting on Sarah's birthday, and then we went out for dinner, and I was like, Sarah, <laughs> this isn't going to stay in me. Um, and it's poor Sarah's at home now. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been one of those weeks this week, but um, uh, it's just fantastic that I'm here by the grace of God and not by my own merit because, uh, you know, he qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. It's one of the most significant things I ever heard because I'm not qualified at all. Um, so, stop talking and start preaching. So we're looking at the story of Exodus still as a people. Um, and we had Steve Brading last week um, speaking to us about the story up to the point in the book of Exodus. And this week we're skipping Leviticus and we're now in the book of Numbers. And so we've been progressing through this wonderful story. Um, the Egyptians were the slaves, uh, sorry, the, the God's people were slaves to the Egyptians' people under the reign of the pharaohs, who became really bitter towards them because they were so prosperous as, an, as, a, as a people group. Um, and we've seen them wrenched, haven't we, from pharaoh's grip, wrenched out of their grip. And they walk across dry waters on dry land. And they're provided for in the desert in amazing ways, including enough water to quench the thirst of two and a half million people. I worked out how much water that is, but I had to take it out because I don't have enough time. It's actually it's about a cubic metre a second, basically. But I cut it out, and I don't know why I included it again. So if you could include, if you could come to me to Numbers chapter 12 today, we're going to be looking at Numbers 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12 is we've got Miriam and Aaron and their rebellion against Moses. We've got chapter 13, we've got the spies spying out the Promised Land and their rebellion. And then chapter 14, we've got God's judgment on his people. What I really want to bring to you today is something that's been on my heart for the last 15 or 16 years. And in the last few months, this has been really burning for me. So when I speak these words, if, if they're challenging at all, I just want you to know that they first challenged me, and they've moved me, and they've stirred me. So if you feel uncomfortable, know that I felt uncomfortable. And so I'm speaking today not to lecture you, but to communicate how God has been stirring me. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm just going to desperately try and convey my heart to you. And not, I'm just, not just lecturing, I'm just trying to tell you how God's been moving me. So let's just, let's just pray. 
Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are a redeemed people. Lord, we thank you that we have been rescued out of slavery and we stand now with a promised land in front of us, Lord. And I pray that you meet with us this morning, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit speaks to us, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit lights a fire in our hearts this morning for all of your purposes, Lord God. And I pray that we would have ears to hear, Lord. Our hearts would be open and that your word would just fall like the farmer's seed right in the most fertile patch, Lord, and grow up and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's four main points here. Number one, God speaks clearly and gives clearly and sends clearly, but the people don't act clearly. Number two, Israel is told to conquer and reign, and they're going to face setbacks and challenges and battles. Number three, God feels emotional pain at their rejection of him. And number four, a whole generation misses out on God's promises because of a lack of faith. So let's start by reading chapter 12. Mm. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and they departed. So God has clearly and decisively and miraculously and faithfully provided for his people, right? He's demonstrated his power and his glory to them at every single point along the way. But this is only half the story. God has saved them into his mission to give them a land, right? And as we see in the text, the land is theirs for taking because the God of the universe has given it to them. It's actually quite straightforward, but they still need to take it. They still need to conquer it. They still need to drive out and destroy the inhabitants because he has saved them into a task. And this is crucial. He, will, he has saved them into a task that he will equip them to accomplish. So the time for rest for them has not yet come. The land flowing with milk and honey has not been taken. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, milk and honey? I used to love having milk and honey as a kid. Imagine a land flowing with milk and honey. It's just such lovely hyperbole. So there's no confusion here for the Jews and and what's being said and these truths because God addresses any ambiguity. If you look at chapter 12, verse 6, we just read these words again. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him with a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. When I speak with him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of God. So it's a clear calling. 
he speaks to Moses face to face. And Moses beholds his form, which is a profound mystery to me. It's so hard to imagine the form of God without personifying it in some way. Even the, even the pillar of smoke in verse 5 of chapter 12 is said to stand at the entrance to the tent. I mean, how can smoke stand? It doesn't have feet. God has no feet. But Moses talks face to face and beholds his form. That's going to annoy me. <laughs> and Moses brings the word to the people. So when Moses speaks, the people know it is God speaking to them. There is no room for confusion at all from God's people. And yet this is the basis of Miriam and Aaron's rebellion. Do you see this? At the start of the chapter, that's the basis for their rebellion. It's also the rebellion for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say that? So we see again God's people being pulled down and away from God's purposes because they're questioning the authority and the clarity of what God's saying. They're allowing ambiguity and excuses to cloud their judgment. And the more clearly God speaks, the more we cloud that clarity with ambiguity, the more dangerous that is for us, right? Actually, God really clearly speaks and really clearly sends them. Let's look at just quickly turn to chapter 13. And in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send a man to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Each, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. Okay? Chap verse 2 in chapter 13, Send men to spy out the land. Verse 2 and verse 3, Send a man. Moses sent them, verse 16. Moses sent them, verse 17, to go, to go, again and again and again. It's so clear what is being called on them to do. There's no mistake on their calling. There's no mistake, there's no ambiguity over what God wants them to do. But does this repetition remind you of anything? Does the emphasis on being sent and going call to mind anything to you? Because it did for me, Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus said to them, all authority in, on heaven and earth has been given to you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's great sending commandment to us, right? It's the most unambiguous plan God has for your life. And it's true of every Christian, regardless of your background, that we must go and make disciples and teach and baptize. So I want you to see that we're just like the Israelites right now. We're in the same place. They look over their shoulder. What do they see? They see the Red Sea they see their salvation and they see Egypt. They see the captivity behind them. And in front of them is the promises of God, is the promised land, is everything they're called to take and inherit. They're standing in front of. We stand behind us our old life as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, it's an incredible place to be. Come and ask me how you do it. Behind you is your slavery to sin. You're brought through to new life by the blood of Jesus who's washed you and made you a saint. 
And in front of you is the Great Commission. In front of us is the work. In front of us is the promised land, the promise of Scripture to bring his kingdom into the world. For the power of the gospel to conquer Satan's strongholds and for the fruit of salvation to be one for the name of Jesus. Just like God tells his people in verse 1 of chapter 13 that he's already given them the land into their hands. He says that, I've already given the land to you. So Jesus tells us to go under his authority. We don't go under our own steam. We go under the authority of Jesus. The Red Sea wasn't parted by hard work. They didn't hold the walls up as they walked through. And we don't strive for our salvation. God gives it as a gift. It's a free gift by faith alone. But the land before us, the Great Commission, the work, that is hard work. That is responsibility for the Jews and for us now. And despite this wonderful promise, they don't act like they've heard or received clearly. Let's read on. Chapter 13, verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, which apparently meant neck, right? Tall people. The Amalekites, the Amalekites <laughs> dwell in the land of the Negev. I'm not going to read that one today. Sometimes you just got to leave something. You know, I could keep trying, but I just get the sense I'm going to leave that one. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and overcome it. I love this. Let us go up at once and, over and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. It's such woe is me, isn't it? So what is going on here, right? This should have been so straightforward. I mean, I can't help thinking I would have been different. I can't help thinking that if I was there and I saw the Red Sea and I saw the manna and the quail and the rock, I'd be like, let's just go and do it. Like, this is going to be easy peasy. So how does everyone disagree? This is like a kid when you go bowling and they put the, um, the thing up, what they call the barriers up. And then you get the steel-framed thing, and your mum and dad put the bowling ball on it, and then you aim. All you've got to do is push the ball down the ramp, and you're going to get a strike. It, it's, a, it's a home run. 
It should be impossible to miss. How do the spies not see that God, all that God has done, and how do they not act with more courage? Moreover, why are all the people moved so easily to complete despair by their bad report? Not only do they give a bad report, but how does that influence so many people? Their faith is extinguished. It's stone cold, dead. Why? What kills faith? Shout it out. What kills faith? Fear. Fear kills faith dead in its tracks. I said in a previous preach that the Bible says do not fear 365 times. I lied. It was wrong. I'm sorry. I apologize. I rescind it. It's a myth. But for my, for my crimes, I counted lines on a concordance and it, 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 the Bible talks about fear well over 365 times. And most of the time, this is associated with God saying, don't fear. Don't fear. Fear can rob us of God's purposes for our life. Right? That, that's real. That's true. Fear can rob us of God's purposes for our life. This is a serious fact. Right? And we can't wave it away with the wand of God's will will always be accomplished, you know. I mean, it's true. His sovereign, eternal will will be accomplished. It says it right here. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. He will accomplish his will. But the lack of faith in his word, and the fear of man has caused God's people to miss out on the first fruits of the promised land. A whole generation dies. A whole generation misses out. Fear of losing their life, or their possessions, or their comfort, and losing out on their old life. Jesus speaks to us directly about this. He says in Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life at my sake will find it. He says in Mark, 20, in Mark 10, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the, fast, the last first. So Jesus knew the fear of loss can grip us, and he spoke directly into that with a wonderful, wonderful promise. What you lose for the name of Jesus will be given back to you. You will be rewarded for your loss and your faithfulness. That's a promise from God. If you haven't listened to the church's podcasts, there's one on persecution. You find it on Spotify or Google or Apple. You just search Christchurch Hailsham, what about? Please listen to the one on persecution. It's a stark reminder that in many parts of the world, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> 
that we as a church have the privilege of working in, people regularly lose not only all they have, not only their loved ones, not only their children and their wives, but they lose their life for following Jesus and believing that he is the risen son of God. And on judgment day, my friends, when the clouds roll up and the stars fall from heaven and we stand before Jesus to receive our reward for being such faithful servants. I can't wait to see the crown that's given to them. I'm literally going to be on tippy toes to see the beauty of the reward that is given to those people that have sacrificed so much because it's an honor. It's an incredible honor. And the honor that they receive will be a, a hundredfold, a thousandfold more than anything they've lost. It's unlikely that things come, come to this for us in this country, because of where we've been born. Our danger has been removed by our privilege. We're very, very, very privileged. Who knows Keith Green, the 70s songwriter, Keith Green? You read his book, No Compromise? Yeah. He sums it up best in his book that Melody, Melody Green wrote, his wife. He says, how come no one idolizes or praises the missionaries who give up everything and live in poverty, endangering their lives and their families with every danger that the American dream has almost completely eliminated? How come no one lifts up and exalts the ghetto and prison ministers and preachers? Because we're taught early on, one, that comfort is our goal and our security. Two, that we should always seek for a lot of people to like us. Those are our goals in life, according to our culture. Comfort and people to like us. Fear of being rejected. Fear of losing the comfort of the world. Fear of losing our security, those two security points. These are the biggest faith killers in our culture. We need to know them and we need to deal with them. What if my friends reject me? What if I don't fit in at work? What if I lose the promotion opportunity? What if I'm fired? What will people think of me if I live there? What will people think of me if I drive that? To be, to be blunt, and I'm going to be blunt, I think if we knew the honor and the reward that we would receive for every single material loss that we encounter, we would be forming an orderly queue to sign over most of our possessions, downsize our houses, give all of our temporal wealth over to Jesus whilst jumping and shouting for the joy set before us. If we really grasped it, if we really understood it, I think we would, because we see it in Acts, when the Holy Spirit moved like that, when they, when they were captured and captivated by the kingdom of God coming. There's nothing else matters. I don't care about anything else. The danger is how much time passes before we have that realization. As Christians... We need to wake up. Chris Joyce brought that word, was it a year ago, two years ago? It was just wake up. We need to wake up and we need to see that the clock is ticking. That clock right now is ticking. Seconds are going by. And somewhere, I don't know where, Jesus is coming back. And with every second that goes by, that's getting closer. That's happening. With every second that goes by, the kingdom of God is coming in full. Jesus is coming back. T 
Time is short and things are getting serious. God's promises and God's plan and God's desire for his kingdom to advance depend on how seriously we grasp this message, our prayers and our actions. We cannot let fear stop us. God has done the work we read in the text that he's given the land to the Israelites. It's done. He's given it over. They just need to conquer through his power. And the same is true for us. Jesus gives us all power and all authority in his name to bring his kingdom. Jesus won't return until every tribe and nation has received the gospel message and his kingdom has fully advanced and conquered. But he partners with our actions, with our prayers, with our money, with our faith, with our time, with our energy. It's all required to advance his kingdom and carry out his will. What is stopping us from leaving our nets and following him? It's a word I brought a few weeks ago. I felt God stirring me in worship, and that verse came to mind. Matthew 4.20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They left their only ability to make money. They left their earthly security. They left their promise of livelihood, and they followed him. Who are we more worried about offending when we talk about Jesus? Our friends or God? Whether or not we speak his name? What are we more worried about missing out on? A takeaway? A new phone that wasn't needed? A new car that wasn't needed? Or God's eternal reward and God's purposes? That's the reality the Israelites had before them, and that's the reality we have before us. In chapter 14, in verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. My goodness me. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the people that watched the sea part. This is the people that watched manna fall down from heaven saying, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I'm angry at them. I'm really cross. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Unbelievable. And the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier 
than they. That was their response, wasn't it, last week? Steve brought the same thing in his preach as well, in the same verses. But this is hard to read. These verses are really hard to hear. I'm heartbroken for God, and I'm heartbroken for his people. Because when you really dial down and see what's happening here, you realize that God's chosen people, who he has loved and demonstrated his love to, are rejecting him. How long will this people despise me? How long will my people reject me? How long will my children abhor me? God is feeling emotional pain as his redeemed people cry out to stone the faithful ones and get rid of Moses. They want to go back to captivity because for all of its horror and evil, the tiny pleasures of their former life were more attractive to them than the responsibility of being God's people. Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's a rejection of their God-given responsibility to live out their redemption in the land that he's given them. God has given us the responsibility of carrying out his will and bringing his kingdom to this earth. Right, that's our responsibility. That's been given to us. Our generation in this room right now, each and every single one of us as Christians, is responsible for this generation of lost souls around us. Nobody else is. It's on us. How do you know that you should witness to your neighbor? Because God has placed you geographically next to them, right? How do you know if you should witness to your colleagues at work? Because you work there. How do you know if you should give generously to God's kingdom work? Because he's given you money. Where does our money go? Let's look at this. A slight detour here. I just want to talk about money. Money goes on things. Money goes on things we need, things we have, and things we do. It's pretty straightforward. There's no problem with money. Now, things we need, they're provided by God, aren't they? Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, sorry. So the things we need, God will do. Which leaves us things we have and things we do. Now, as we read in that Keith Green quote, we're valued as a society. We're valued and judged as people by things we have and things we do. If you have nice things and you do nice things, people will approve you, respect you and look up to you, be jealous of you and yearn to be like you. Having things is not wrong. Doing things is not wrong. Having and doing things so that you feel accepted and proud and like you've achieved something and to seek joy, that's where we stray into the territory of the, the, rich, the rich man being told to sell everything he has when that becomes the object of our desire, when we, become, when we start striving for it. So we as a church are doing so much to reach Hailsham, to reach the lost souls. We have little gems and baby gems working with young mums and children. We work in the schools. We have Global Cafe working with, with refugees. We have Keys working with people who are being set free from addiction. We have Food Bank. We have CMA working with people with money problems. We're doing all that we can now with the resources that we've given. We are at maximum. 
Yeah, there's, there's, there's just literally no more room. The limiting factor as a church is money. You know limiting factor? Remember hearing about this in biology? Growing tomatoes, they get all the water and all the sunlight and all the nutrients they need. The limiting factor actually becomes carbon dioxide. So they pump carbon dioxide into the polytunnels because without the carbon dioxide, it doesn't matter how much other stuff they've got, the tomatoes won't grow. And our limiting factor now is just money and time. That's it. As a church, that's all stopping us from doing more. But the interesting thing is, what does the world want from you? <clears throat> the world wants your money. It cries for it. It screams for it. What does the church need to grow God's kingdom influences? It's your money and your time. If each of us increased our tithing to church by 10%, this is just a fact, if each of us increased our giving and our tithing to the church by 10%, we would transform what we are able to do as a people when we stand before the promised land of God's promises. It's testimony time here. I love the testimony. We had testimony from Grant about giving and Rob about giving. And Sarah and I recently looked at our tithing and we increased it to what we felt was right before God, okay? And that very same month after we made that decision, I think actually it was within a week of us changing the, the, the bank order, I got a totally unexpected mid-year review and was given a totally unexpected pay rise. And God is so faithful to provide everything we need. And sometimes we just need to take that step and he'll meet us, right? God has shown me he's faithful to his promises. God wants us to step out in faith and then he will meet our needs. Okay, back to my main point. My main point, going back to it. Oh, I better speed up. Do you know for a long time in this country, being a Christian has been like one of those lazy rivers at centre parks, you know, where the water's like pumped through and you just sort of skip along? We've had Christian principles in Parliament. We've had Christian principles in schools, in universities, for many hundreds of years, but within a generation that's being eroded away, postmodernism. No more can you say that nice Christian couple. Right, that's just an oxymoron now. Christians aren't nice, according to the world. It doesn't exist anymore. Because that's just a complete oxymoron to the world. Now, have you ever tried walking against the flow in a lazy river? It's really hard work. You have to fight it. Water clings to you and it pulls you. And everything is hard and everything is tiring. And everyone is going the other way, having a fantastic time, and you're not. But the Bible says wide is the path to hell and narrow is the door to heaven. And Jesus says if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. <coughs> we stand at the borders to the promised land, and our old life is calling us. It says comfort, it says security, it says prosperity, it says acceptance, it says prestige. All these things are not available when you become a Christian. You won't be accepted. You won't have prestige. You'll be hated. You'll be derided. You'll lose your credibility. You're going to lose everything. But Jesus says, no, take up your cross. Take up my kingdom values of humility, of love, of self 
sacrifice, of treating others as if they're more important to you, of forsaking the world and follow me to the end. We have work to do and the clock is ticking. Lost time is never found. A moment of embarrassment as we're rejected by our peers, a lifetime of eternity praising the holy God. We've got to see that perspective. Indulging in what we deserve or giving him what he deserves. Who's seen Schindler's List here? A few of you. Yeah, I saw it a really long time ago. It's a true story about this Czech-born businessman in Poland who realizes the horror of the Holocaust and he manages to save about 1,100 Jews using his wealth and his uh, factory to get them out of going to Auschwitz, right? Their end was horrendous. Right at the end, there's a scene when he realizes how much more he could have done. I could have saved more, he said. He's standing before 1,100 Jews, and he suddenly realizes, I could have saved more. I could have made more money. I threw so much money away, he says, when he sees the value of a human life, and he sees the utter inconsequential value of the things he's put his money in. It haunts him. He says, why did I keep this car? There was 10 people right there. This pin... This is gold, two more people. But it's too late for him. And God has been showing me how many opportunities I've passed by, telling myself things aren't perfect, right? It's not the right time. But that's a way of covering up my fear of rejection. That's a way of not being honest with the fact that I'm ashamed of the gospel, I don't want to tell people because it's embarrassing because our culture has moved so much that to even talk about the gospel is offensive to people now. And it's hard to share your faith now. And I just had this moment where I realized how many lost souls are there around us and we're missing moments because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants us to say it. That's more like it. So God has been moving me to step out and to be bold and to pray for people, to witness to people. Every person you meet, every time you go shopping, is a chance to say to someone, has anyone ever told you that Jesus loves you? I mean, it's just a question. It's a yes or no question. And if they say no, what an amazing opportunity that's just happened. Oh, he does. He really loves you. Have a lovely day. There's just one moment that you've managed to share the gospel, that Jesus loves them and tell them that they're loved by God. And we need to know that if the moment that we understand how short our life is or how precious our resources is like Schindler, if it's at the end, if the moment that we realize how much work there is to do is the moment you stand before Jesus or lie on your deathbed, that's actually a pretty awful moment when every trinket we've ever bought, every hobby we've ever plowed hours into at the expense of family or church, will be insignificant, as ash or dust. It's inconsequential. I felt God saying to me, don't hide your lamp under a basket. And it really challenged me. The lamp's there, you know, we just, we just keep it hidden because it's easier. We mustn't hide behind the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by this is, we mustn't waste time and waste opportunities because we're too afraid to say the name of Jesus, waiting 
for the Holy Spirit, bear with me on this, to do something miraculous. Waiting to be hyperbolous for the archangel Gabriel to descend from the clouds and speak in the voice of a thousand waterfalls and say, Thomas Simmons, now the time has come. God has ordained this moment. As you open your mouth to this person on the bus, surely he will be struck by the awe of God and he will reveal the secrets of his heart. Okay, but while we wait for that moment, how many moments are we missing? How many days go past and we don't tell anyone? Too many. How many people do we pass that are doomed to hell? 150,000 people die every day. One of the most troubling things I ever heard an atheist say, um, it was a blog, an online blog I was reading, and he said, okay, okay, so it's true. So we're, so we're damned. So half the world or whatever is going to an eternal hell. Then how do you as Christians not spend each and every day telling every person you meet that Jesus loves them and they need to put their faith in Jesus? That really challenged me. In this final closing section, we see God's people suddenly realise that their lack of action has meant that they miss out on what God is doing. Verse 28, chapter 14. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. <coughs> but Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when, we will, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. The people realize that their lack of faith has cost them greatly and they're not going to see the promised land, all the fruit, all the milk and honey. But it's too late now. It's too late for action. It's too late for change. God gave them an opportunity and they turned it down. God's eternal will will be accomplished, as we have read, but a whole generation loses out on the promises of God because of their unbelief in him. So they react. They act without God, and they pig-headedly strive out of their own strength despite the warnings. Now, I'm going to close with this. And I want, I want to make clear that lack of action is, is serious, and I think we need to face our fears and just tell more people about Jesus. But we're a people of the new covenant. We're not under the righteous anger of sin. We're under a covenant of grace. And we're a people filled with the Holy Spirit. And we must go on being filled with the Holy Spirit so we can listen to that little voice telling us to step out in faith with God. And not despite God like the, like the Israelites do in the end, but with him. Screaming the name of Jesus through letterboxes is very effective at alienating people. So we need wisdom, right? We need discretion. We need promptings of the Holy Spirit 
in order to allow God to work through us by his strength. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. <coughs> Scouts, I've spent a lot of time camping and making fires, actually. And there's one thing that can make a huge difference. It's having dry tinder. A little box full of waxy paper or birch bark can make the difference between a fire and a pile of wet wood. If it's raining and your tinder's dry, you've got a chance. So every conversation we have, God is there, ready. Every single conversation we have, God is there with a match, ready to ignite. He lights the match. You strike up a conversation. God's there. I was going to do a match, but I just thought, no, it's too much stress. Is our tinder dry? Is our, is our box of defense ready to be opened and say, God, come on. Are we ready to step out? I hope I've conveyed my heart to you this morning that like the Jews, we stand on the border of God's kingdom. We're saved into mission. We're saved into work. The time for rest has not come. You will have rest. You will have perfect, eternal rest where you feast at the banquet table of God for eternity and it will be beautiful, but now is the time of work. And we're told to carry God's kingdom with us and bring it to the lost. We have been redeemed into the work of God, and we must honour him by working hard. <coughs> Our time is now, church. What are we going to do with the short breath of life that we're given? Are we going to allow fear to rob us of the faith God calls us into, or are we going to put our hand to the plough and push through into the fruits of the kingdom? We've got Alpha coming up at the end of the year, September. Is it September? 29th. September 29th. Alpha is an incredible opportunity for you to bring people along to hear the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ explained very well. And there's enough time between now and September to invite 10 people on Alpha, right? There is enough time. Fact. If everybody in this church invited 10 people on Alpha and 10% of them said yes, we'd have 200 people coming on Alpha, Statistically, the harvest is ripe. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fruit is there. The people are willing. The people are hungry. We've just got to open our mouth and say, hey, can I just talk to you about my faith? I really want you to come along to this thing called Alpha. No, I hate it. Okay, that's fine. One person will say yes. I guarantee it. Anyway, let's have the band up. Let's run over. But I just, I really wanted to, to plug Alpha as something that isn't just that thing that church does. It's, it's the core mission that Jesus has given us and we're doing it in a structured way that's, that's really helpful. So be, be considering Alpha, please, this, this summer holiday, this summertime. I'm going to pray for us now and then we, we're closed with a, with a song. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have accomplished everything for us. We thank you that your redemption and our salvation has been done by you and we've received it as a free gift. Lord, we thank you that we don't strive into purposes of our own strength, Lord Jesus, but you meet us with the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, I thank you that you have trusted us with this oracle of God. You have trusted us with this gospel message. You have trusted us with the hope of salvation. You've given the kingdom to us, Lord. You say the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh this morning. Fill us with that impetus, Lord Jesus, to share your love, to share your name, to share your gospel message. Lord, I pray there would be a fire in people's hearts as they leave this building. Lord, that they would, that they would know, Lord Jesus, that you have, you have given all things to them, Lord, in kingdom purposes. Father, I pray for many, many people to know that you are their Lord and Saviour. I pray for the town of Hailsham, Lord Jesus, to, to see a revival of your name, Lord, to see your church's influence sweeping through. Lord, for ripple effects where every Christian in this church lives, that there'll be a ripple effect around that church, that we would be so influencing people around us, that we would see more and more people join and worship your name. Lord, that we would know that we stand on a Sunday with brothers and sisters and neighbours and colleagues spending the rest of eternity worshipping in them. Lord, I pray that we would have your delight, your anguish, rather, for the lost and your delight in salvation put on our hearts. Father, be with us as we push into all that you have for us. Amen. Thanks, Rob.